God uses many pictures in the Bible to help us understand who he is and what he's like. For example, God is described as a father in the Bible, or as a shepherd, or a lion and a lamb. He's described as living bread or living water, a light, a warrior, a rock, a shield, and many more. There are many pictures of God. But a common picture of God, which I think we tend to overlook, is God as a lover. God as a lover, as someone who wants to be with us, to romance us, to love us, even to marry us. Now, you may think that sounds strange or even sacrilege, but it's a very biblical idea. God is, or at least should be, our lover. You might say our husband, our closest soulmate. Now, guys here, don't squirm. (laughs) God is a husband to his people, plural, not individually, to to either Israel or the church. He's our husband. But there's far more to this picture of God as a lover than just sentimental, lovey-dovey feelings. You see, God is not just like any generic lover. No, he is explicitly described as a spurned lover. Like a jilted husband who walks in on his wife cheating with him, cheating on him. And like you'd expect from a, a jealous husband, God is righteously angry about this. However, God is different from most spurned human lovers who might just fly off the handle or cut off a relationship or hit someone or get bitter or and refuse to forgive. Maybe the most remarkable aspect of God being a cheated-on lover is that he is in pursuit. Maybe it's he still pursues us. And it's not to exact vengeance, but in order to forgive and to restore and to love. It really is remarkable. There might, be, there might not be a better place to see this than in the vivid and prophetic book of Hosea. And I invite you to turn there with me now to Hosea chapter 2. That's on page 751, if you're using one of the Bibles we provide there for you. Hosea chapter 2. The book of Hosea consists of a number of messages spoken by God through Hosea the prophet. But God didn't just have Hosea speak messages. He had, them, he had him act them out in real life. And last week, as we started this book, we saw God give Hosea the shocking command to basically marry a whore and then to raise children with his fickle, promiscuous wife in order to publicly demonstrate what God's relationship with Israel, with his people, was like. Because it was like God was married to an unfaithful slut. 
If back in chapter one, what it says in, in chapter one, verse two, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now it wasn't difficult as we read through this last week to see ourselves mirrored in unfaithful Israel. Our unfaithful selves mirrored in unfaithful Israel. Because we too essentially commit spiritual adultery when we forsake the Lord. And we too deserve tragic consequences when we do, which was, which were, was illustrated by Hosea's three kids. He, he got them three funny names, strange names. They're named Jezreel, which represented a, a massacre a century prior. Lo Ruhamah, which meant no mercy. And Lo Ami, which meant not my people. Harsh messages. But despite all that, chapter one ended with God Beautifully reaffirming his love. Promising to reverse our fate. To restore us as family. If you would look with me in verse 9 of chapter 1. This is the end of his warnings. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Verse 10. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Wow! Now, in my opinion, chapter 2 maybe even more powerful than chapter 1, in revealing God's love for his people. That's my prayer, and I'll ask you actually to join with me in prayer now for that. Would you please pray with me? (coughs) Heavenly Father, we pray that you would reveal your love to us today. That we would see our sin, but that we would see much more your mercy for our sin. And we pray that you would use these words written so long ago to change our hearts today. Speak through me by your Spirit. Let your word go forth with power. In Jesus' name, amen. So the incredible reversal I just filled you in on continues in chapter 2. Read verse 1 with me. It says, Say to your brothers... You are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Stop there for now. So despite God's warnings of punishment and judgment, God still loved his people. He absolutely still loved his people. And to demonstrate this, he actually renamed Hosea's awfully named children here. He says, say to your brothers, you are my people, your sisters, you have received mercy. Now notice two things quickly. First, this chapter begins on a very positive, optimistic note. But while, and there, but secondly, notice that two of the three kids got renamed here. Not the third one. We'll get to the neat reason why later on. 
But while chapter 1 focused particularly on the three kids, chapter 2 focuses on their mother. And when God starts speaking about his unfaithful wife, things turn pretty dark pretty fast. We don't know if Hosea lived out all of this story in chapter 2 or some of it or none of it with his own wife, Gomer. What we do know is that the Lord experienced all of this with his people, Israel. Right after renaming his children in verse 1, he gives them some instructions in verse 2. It says this, Plead with your mother. Plead. For she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she plead that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. When God says to plead here, it actually refers to the idea of pressing charges in court. So it's a, it's a startling picture of some kids hauling their own mother off to court and accusing her. Denouncing her in order to try to get her to renounce her sin. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Now this does not mean that God had divorced Israel completely, but they were certainly estranged. They were separated. Thanks to Israel's actions. So God is like, since, since her and I are cut off from each other, I need you to deliver a message to her. The New Living Translation puts the message this way. Tell your mother to take off her garish makeup and suggestive clothing and stop playing the prostitute. Stop cheating on me. Now think of it. In order to live as God's people, the Israelites actually had to denounce Israel. They had to denounce their own people. Now this is the first of several calls to radical repentance in this chapter. And it can be very hard to repent. I know it is a lot easier to call other people out on their issues than to see them in ourselves. And even if we do confess our sins, many of us don't want to make a clean break with it. Sometimes we may need to denounce our own culture, our society, our tribes, our families, even our churches at times. But if we look inside ourselves, if we have played the whore ourselves, we are called here to put it away completely, to take off the makeup. It appears that Israel wasn't quite ready to yet. Are you? If we aren't, we are courting disaster. Look with me again. Plead with your mother. Plead. Into verse 3. Lest, or otherwise, or if she refuses, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the, the whore. She who had conceived them has acted shamefully. Have you ever been to a, a desert before? Where it's usually very hot, dry, dusty, relatively lifeless. And my family once drove through Death Valley one of the hottest places on earth. 
Now, if you have been to a desert like that before, how long did you want to stay there? Maybe on a, uh, a snowy day like today, you're thinking, you know what, I'll take it. <laughs> when do I go, <laughs> right? But even if you went today, I doubt you'd want to stay there very long. There is a reason that, not, that there are very few people that live in the desert. There might be a city in the desert, but there aren't people that live out in the desert. You get dirty, dry, dusty, thirsty, hot, sunburnt, miserable. Here in Hosea, God says he would punish Israel by turning her into a desert wilderness. He'll make her into a desert. The nation of Israel had been birthed in the wilderness, if you know the story, like, like a naked, helpless baby. They were birthed there. And God says he's going to send them back to those miserable days. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. And make her like a wilderness. Make her like a parched land. And kill her with thirst. God's people would be emptied of life. Many of them would actually die in exile. Upon her mercy, upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For her, their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Now, some of you may think, God's been pretty harsh with Israel at times in Hosea so far. I mean, he outright called her a whore and said her, her children were children of whoredom who deserved to be exiled and die forsaken by God with no mercy. What in the world did Israel do to deserve that? To answer your question, I'd just say read the whole Old Testament. <laughs> You'll see. But to give you an overview, for centuries, right, God had been, had delivered them over and over and over and over again. Many times miraculously, parting the seas, parting the rivers, leading them through the deserts, giving them bread from heaven, from water, from rocks, toppling Jericho, settling them in the promised land, toppling Goliath winning battle after battle after battle. You think about Elijah taking on the prophets of Mount Baal. God had delivered them over and over and over again. And every time God saved them, it was like they had a revival. Right? People returned to God. They rejoiced in Him. They resumed following His law. But it never seemed to last. They always forgot what God did and fell into sin again. Worshipping false gods. Breaking God's law. Doing basically whatever they wanted to do. And after what God kept doing for them, their turning on Him was inexcusable. In Hosea's time, they were in the midst of a, a string of particularly evil rulers and practices in the land. The, the most recent idol worship in Israel was some of the worst of its kind. I mean, if, I've told you, if I told you some of the stuff it involved, you'd probably puke. Baal, a, a very prominent Canaanite, Canaanite god, it will get mentioned here, Baal was believed to control nature's fertility. 
So if you wanted a bumper crop on your farm, or you wanted a, a bountiful flocks of livestock, what you had to do was you had to worship Baal, the god of fertility, which usually involved performing ritualistic sex acts with various people in various places all over the land. Baal was seen as the god that provided food and flocks and their respective products. This is why the unfaithful wife says in verse 5, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. They thought Baal gave these things. But in worshiping him, Israel was abandoning God, abandoning their Husbands and playing the whore. And I worry that many of us have been perhaps doing the same. We dethrone and displace God in our lives too, in so many ways. We treat Him as unnecessary. We look to other lovers, so to speak, to satisfy our needs and to fulfill our desires. We look to jobs to provide purpose in life or to money to provide happiness. We look to food and drink and substances to provide satisfaction. We look to relationships to provide pleasure or fulfillment. We look to possessions to provide status or security. We may not all have farms anymore, but we're still looking for fulfilling harvests in our lives. And so we are banging on the doors of false gods of fertility, thinking that they will somehow give us what we seek. Derek Kidner says, Her lovers are many, but her motive is one, the reward she can earn. It's true. The reason she cheats is because she thinks she'll gain something from it. And I think this reveals something that is true about all of our heart's motives. And here's how I put it. We shamefully pursue other lovers to gain things that only God gives to us. We shamefully pursue other lovers to gain things that only God gives to us. God responds to all of this in verse 6. After the woman says she's going to go after her lovers, verse 6, Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Now, this is partially punishment, And it is partially protection. Why trap her with thorns or wall her in? Why? So that she cannot find her paths. Paths to what? Her lovers. Look at verse 7. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not Find them. So, in other words, God is saying that He will frustrate His wife's attempts to sin further. He's going to confuse her paths towards sin. He's going to block the way. One scholar says, God is speeding the process of disillusion. 
She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. If I'm right, I think this happens quite a bit to us too. Right? We pursue a sin, and God stops us in our tracks, or frustrates our attempts. Right? We Say we try to disobey our parents, and they end up standing in our way. Maybe very literally. Or we try to fill up our bank accounts and they empty instead. Or we try to watch something we shouldn't. And either technology or privacy fails us. Now obviously, sometimes God allows us to pursue sin and find it, to to commit it. But what we aren't ever able to find in those things is satisfaction, fulfillment, or happiness. It is a mercy of God that he prevents us from doing everything we sinfully want to do. Thank God that he has protected you from going as far as you've intended to go sometimes. Hosea's unfaithful wife ends up getting so frustrated in her pursuit that she gives up. Right? She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. Now she's definitely not saved from her fate yet, but this gives us a glimmer of hope. In verse 8, God reveals some of why Israel's actions were so offensive to him. Read with me. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Okay, I can almost sense tears in God's eyes as he says this. Can you? She didn't know that it was I who gave these things to her. I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, the silver, the gold, which they used for bail. My wife sought food and drink and clothes and riches, but when she did find those things, didn't she know that I gave them to her? I lavished them on her. Because I loved her. I prospered her. But not only did she not recognize that I provided all these good things for her, she, used, she proceeded to use those things to worship Baal. She had ignored the giver and passed his gifts onto his usurper. Imagine me taking my wedding ring that my wife gave me and somehow using it to flirt with other women. How hurtful or insulting would that be? And yet that's basically what we do. We take the amazing gifts that God gives us and we use them to worship other things or ourselves. We use God's provision of money to spend money sinfully or to hoard it greedily. We have no problem tithing to athletes, musicians, or Hollywood. 
We use God's gifts of possessions to inflate our own positions or our pride. We use God's gift of a body to sin with our body in all kinds of ways. Gossip or slander with the tongue that he gave us. We lust or we covet with the eyes that he made for us. I could go on and on. We take God's blessings and we use them for idolatry. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. I tell you this, a few months ago, God used this passage to wreck me. Bring me to my knees. But he also used it to to reveal his grace to me. That despite our continual offensive sins, he still protects us from the depths of our depravity frustrating us in our sin. And he still gives to us so abundantly, lavishing us with good things. But they are his things. And so when we relentlessly ignore that or forget that fact, he has every right to take his things back. And that's what he does next in Hosea. The point we'll see is this, that we do shamefully pursue other lovers to gain things that only God gives us. So, we shouldn't be surprised when we are punished for forgetting our loving God. We shouldn't be surprised when we are punished for forgetting our loving God. The next few verses here all focus on God's catastrophic judgment on sin. Okay, he says, they use this for Baal, verse 9. Therefore... I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the bales, which she, when she burned offerings to them and adorned her with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So where before God had lavishly provided, he was now going to withhold. Where he had lovingly protected, he was now going to expose, humiliate Israel. He was going to put an end to their celebrations and turn their homes into a barren wilderness. These all foreshadowed what happened soon after as Assyria invaded and exiled Israel. All this happened. Ultimately, though, it was God who brought the punishment. In verse 10, he said, Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. 
the one who had been their constant rescuer would become their oppressor. But at the end of the day, God was just taking back what was rightfully his. Now these verses reveal a bit more of the depths of what Israel had done as well. Apparently, they had continued all their religious festivals that they were supposed to celebrate. You saw that in verse 11. Their feasts and new moons and Sabbaths, appointed feasts. But they had turned these holy days meant for God into days for idolatry. Verse 13, And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. Party time was over. Baal would fail them. As Kinder comments, behind this, there is the failed promise of the Baals for whom an infatuated Israel had dolled herself up, flirting with them at the very feasts which were given to cement her union with the Lord. Using the, the marriage metaphor, This would be kind of like sleeping around on your anniversary. For a direct parallel between the times, imagine us using our Easter worship service to worship Allah or Vishnu. One final comment here. Notice what was at the heart of Israel's issues at the end of 13. All his punishment would come come upon them because they went after her lovers and forgot me. They forgot me, declares the Lord. Spiritual amnesia or forgetfulness is an extremely serious problem. When we forget things in life, they're usually pretty trivial things, right? Like forgetting to take the garbage out forgetting to charge your phone, forgetting to to pay off a bill, forgetting the name of the person sitting next to you. And we may be slightly inconvenienced, maybe penalized, annoyed, embarrassed. Not the end of the world, though. But forgetting God is another matter altogether. The Bible sees it as a grave Error. In fact, I'd suggest that, that forgetting God could, have, could be at the root of every sin we ever commit. Because every time you go to sin, you have to forget God, intentionally or not. Right? You have to forget who God is, what He's done for us, or what He can do. That's why one of the most crucial things we do as a church... This table over here is all about pure remembering. Remembering. We must not, we dare not forget the Lord or what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. Or it's a grave issue. Because our forgetfulness, because of our forgetfulness, which leads to spiritual adultery, we deserve punishment. That should not really be surprising to us. But there are things that should surprise us. And it should surprise us that God would choose to end the punishment and to spare many of us from it.
to surprise us, that he wouldn't just let us go free, but that he would still actually love us dearly, deeply. And this is where Hosea takes us next with some of what I believe are some of those beautiful words in the Bible. God says, I will punish her for she forgot me. She went after her lovers, forgot me, declares the Lord. But then the whole mood shifts drastically in verse 14. Read with me. We're going to read a number of verses here. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Do you realize how stunning this picture is? You get what's happening? A wife has strayed abandoning and insulting and offending her husband. But despite all of that, the husband hasn't given up on her completely. And he pulls out all the stops to try to win her back. This is such a great picture of what God has done for us through Jesus. We have strayed. We have abandoned and insulted and offended our God. But despite all of that, he hasn't given up on us completely and he pulls out all the stops to try to win us back. We shamefully pursue other lovers over God, so we shouldn't be surprised when we're punished. But we should be stunned when God mercifully and eternally loves us anyway. We should be stunned when God mercifully and eternally loves us anyway. In these verses, God effectively hits the reset button on his relationship with Israel. And as he does so, it parallels the stages of most romantic human relationships. The stages that they go through. He starts with the attraction stage. Right? The, the butterflies in your stomach stage. And he says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. Allure is not a word we usually associate with God. But he does himself here. He says, I will allure. I'm going to allure my wayward wife to make, to make myself desirable to her once again. 
I'm going to woo her, to attract her, to draw her to me. I'll make her want me. Kidner says, True love need be no less ravishing than false, only less disappointing. I love that. Next, after the attraction stage, God moves on to the romantic stage of the relationship. I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. As we saw earlier, Israel was birthed in the wilderness. So that's where things began for them. So God's like, let's go back to where we had our first date. All right? I want to show you something there. He then speaks tenderly, gently, lovingly. It's a picture of a lover whispering sweet nothings in her ear. Then look what God does with the wilderness, which was presently associated with punishment. Remember, I'll make her a wilderness in verse 3. I'll, I'll lay waste to her vineyards in verse 12. But there, in the wilderness, God charmingly reverses all that. Verse 15, And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. He romantically lavishes gifts on her, turning the desert into a lush vineyard. Now, there's a story behind the valley of Achor, which I'll come back to in a minute. But here in verse 15, finally, we see a positive response from the wife in response to these gifts that God gives her, transforms the desert into vineyards, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So God takes her back to where things began, and Israel responds the way she did then. She reciprocates his love, like the the love-struck young woman she once had been. Which then leads to the final relationship stage of commitment. When God and Israel renew their marriage covenant... Verse 16, and in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. FYI, if you're confused, betrothal was like a more serious version of our engagement. Okay? But he betrothed her. I want to quickly show you here, Four actions God takes in order to show us mercy and love. First, he pursues us. He pursues us. He doesn't just let us go. Right? He may for a while, but he inevitably chases after us. Even though we pursue other lovers, he pursues us as our Lover, alluring us to him. And unlike our failed pursuits back in verse 7, when God pursues us, he will overtake us. We can, we can see this aspect of God's mercy vividly displayed in the way God pursued us in Christ. Right? How he left the glories of heaven to chase us down and to show us love. And after God pursues... Second, he blesses us graciously, 
blesses us, working mind-boggling reversals for us. So that even when we deserve nothing but wrath, He pours out His love on us. Go back to verse 15, where it says, There I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Now, you know, you all know the story of Jericho, right? When the Israelites were first entering the promised land and Jericho's walls fell before them. Well, there was this guy named Achan who, against God's explicit command, ended up taking some things he shouldn't have from Jericho's ruins. And when the Israelites went to fight their next battle, God let them suffer a crushing defeat and then said, you are going to keep losing until you deal with the sinner among you. Well, Achan's sin was eventually discovered, exposed, and he was put to death. And they named the place where he was killed the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble. Valley of Trouble. So God's people had to go through this valley of trouble before entering the promised land. It was like the valley of Acre was this infamous gateway to the promised land. So why was Hosea recalling this story here? Dwayne Garrett explains, says, Achan's sin was in seizing riches that God had declared taboo. By analogy, the Israel of Hosea's day went after the gifts of her lovers. But the grace of God here reverses the meaning of Achor. Instead of signifying punishment for greed, it has become a place of restoration. Or as the text says, it has become a door or a gateway of hope. So God transforms the bad into good. beautiful. And that's only one of the incredible gifts that God offers his lover here in Hosea. He restores her vineyards, like we saw in verse 15. He also gives them peace with the land, with the animals and their enemies in verse 18. It says, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. I will make you lie down in safety. This is paradise regained for his people. Perfect security, harmony, peace, shalom. This anticipates more than has been fulfilled throughout history. Right? We're still waiting for this. But it will be fulfilled. And then you see the Lord, look at the blessings that that the Lord pours out near the end. We haven't read this yet. In verse 21. And in that day... I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. This is a picture of God telling the heavens to rain or to shine down on the earth so that the earth has what it needs to bring forth a bountiful harvest. In reality, there is only one God from whom all blessings flow. Not Baal. And here, Israel will finally be in a place to recognize that. 
and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and notice the end, and he shall say, you are my God. Now, did you notice the name Jezreel in there? Remember Jezreel from last week? This was the name of Hosea's first son, which evoked memories of a bloody massacre. And remember how at the beginning of this chapter, his second and third kids got new names? Jezreel didn't. So why not? Because he didn't need to be renamed. See, the name Jezreel had a double meaning. The name, it had become associated with tragedy, right? But the original meaning of Jezreel was simply God sows, as in sows seeds. And now God was using the name of Jezreel in the way that it was always meant to be used, saying that God was going to sow again. He was going to plant some crops. But did you notice what he was going to sow specifically? In verse 23 says, and I will sow her for myself in the land. So let me simplify this for you. God wasn't just planting crops. He was planting a people. Now, sowing and reaping good harvests meant everything to ancient farmers and modern farmers. But for us who have received Christ... The blessings he's given are infinitely greater. Through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, God's blessings go cosmic. Ephesians 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It then goes on to say how we have been chosen, made holy and blameless, predestined, adopted, blessed, redeemed, forgiven, lavished with grace, shown God's will, united with Him, given an inheritance, sealed with the Spirit, and more. As God's people, we are God's crops ourselves. He is growing us up like plants in good soil. He has sowed us for himself, for his own glory, in order to reap a harvest one day. What kind of harvest will he reap from the seeds that are being sown in us? So he pursues us. He graciously blesses us. Also, he wins our hearts. The whole purpose of God's pursuit is is to win us back, and so he does, but not in a coercive way. It says he speaks tenderly to our hearts and woos us to himself so that we can respond very willingly, as Israel does here. 
And there she, in verse 15, there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. So God wins our hearts to the point that we lose our desires for other lovers. Right? Verse 17. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Whereas God had been forgotten in verse 13, now Baal is the one rightfully forgotten. When we lose things we love in life, not always, sometimes it may be God removing idols from us. It may not feel like grace to lose money, to lose a job, or to lose a relationship or a reputation. But it is absolutely a grace of God if he is ripping an idol away from us. Because pursuing those things will only lead to ruin. And God doesn't want ruin for us. He wants your heart to be completely taken and captivated by him. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Seek first his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you as well. Completely taken with him. So he pursues us, he blesses us, he wins our hearts, and finally he pledges himself to us forever. I finally remember the day I pledged myself to my wife for the rest of our lives. And we stood on a stage and held hands and gazed into each other's eyes, made our vows. I take you to be my wife, to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, for better, for worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and health and so on, as long as we both shall live. Throughout these verses... It's very much like there's an exchange of wedding vows going on. You'll call me my husband, and I'll betroth you to you forever. I'll say this, you'll say this. And listen again to God, in essence, reaffirming his wedding vows to his people. Verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. He repeats it three times. I'll betroth you. I'll betroth you. I'll betroth you. I am going to marry you. Because, because he uses the language of betrothal, which happens before marriage, it's like he's saying, this is a fresh start. We're beginning again. In other words, it was a new covenant. Which, of course, we know it was brought about by Jesus Christ. 
I don't have time to go in depth on the distinctives that God attaches to his pledges here, but quickly just run through them. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. So this is a never-ending, eternal covenant, never to be broken. And then I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Now these are all, of course, prominent attributes of God himself. Israel had sorely lacked these things, and that's what led to the breakdown of the marriage in the first place. But God's side was ultimately the only side that mattered. He had all these things. And if he is the one providing the righteousness and the justice and the hesed love and mercy, then this covenant was built on a rock-solid foundation. Finally, verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Faithfulness really could sum up all those other qualities. But notice, in pledging these qualities to his bride, God was also giving them to her as gifts. He imparts them to us so we can once again live in harmony with him. When the Lord pledges himself to us, really he's giving himself to us so that at the end of his vows, he ends with a short but very significant statement, and you shall Know the Lord. This is God's goal in pursuing and in, and really the point of the whole chapter. We need to know God. As Garrett says, to know God implies the deepest relationship with him. Let me ask you, do you know the Lord? Have you come to see him as your savior, as your Lord, as your judge, as your king? Have you believed that God's son, Jesus, died to take that punishment that you deserve? Have you accepted his grace and mercy so freely offered to you? Listen. You never initiated a relationship with God. You ran in the opposite direction. But you can now return to him because he loves you, because he pursues you, because he wants to win your heart. These ancient words can very much apply to you today as you can know God in Christ, experiencing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And you shall know the Lord. So I implore you, flee from your other lovers. Run away from them. Return to your first love today. Maybe for the first time. The final words of chapter 2 give us the human response to all of this mercy from God. The very end of, of verse 23 says, And he shall say, in response to God saying, You are my people, he shall say, You are my God. Can you say that today? Can you say, can you, can you really affirm God's new covenant back to him? His covenant of love with you. You are my God. Can you say that? If you can, actually say it now. You are my God. 
Say, you are my God. I don't know if you noticed, but God's mercy surrounds and pervades this whole passage. It is given before our sin is described. In the very first verse, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Then, it is given even during the middle of judgment being denounced, especially in verse 6 to 8, as we saw. And then, it is given after our unfaithfulness runs its course, with God pursuing his bride. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So it is with us. God's mercy is poured out on us long before we knew we needed it. And in the very moments when our sin is the worst... There's mercy. And his mercy will endure forever. Let's pray together. And then we're going to remember the Lord's mercy around his table. Heavenly Father, there are really no words we could say to express back to you what you've done for us. You know how far we've fallen. You know how much we don't deserve. And yet you lavish your love on us. I pray that you would awaken hearts and wonder to that today. May we see you. May we love you more. For you are worthy of all our love. In Jesus' name, amen.